what, what I'm going to do is we're going to uh, spend a bit of time uh, looking at this topic this morning, uh, which is the topic around um, proclaim, but it's especially around the area of hospitality. Uh, and so just as we do that, I'm going to be asking a few questions from the floor, so just don't be afraid of just shouting out. Um, uh, we'll also be doing some stuff in the workshop as well, uh, but hopefully there'll be a bit of interaction from the floor as well that you can kind of give us a shout out and give us some answers as well. So it's a bit of a, uh, it's a talk, but it's also it's an opportunity for you to, to, um, to get stuck in as well. Um, thinking about this topic of hospitality, what is hospitality? So someone said to you, what is hospitality? What is it? Making others feel welcome. My son did a hospitality course at school. What does that mean? Cooking. He learned how to make lasagna, yeah? <laughs> Providing food. Feeding people. Yep. Yep. Yeah, whenever people think about oh, at university as well, I'm going into the hospitality. What does that actually mean? Usually it's around food. Um, I think even whenever we think of it around church, sometimes when I hear people about thinking about hospitality, oh, he or she's really good at hospitality, it means they're really good at making buns, cooking cakes for a Sunday afternoon, morning tea. Whenever we think about hospitality, that's usually in that kind of category that we're actually thinking about when we think about hospitality. But whenever we come to the Bible, the word hospitality is actually comes from these Greek words, philos, which is loving, and zonos, which means a stranger. It basically means at its core, loving the stranger. The Latin root of the word comes from hostess, which is stranger, or hospice, which is host. And so what you find is that the early churches, that you had this word um, hospitality, which was used where people would welcome and they would love the stranger. That's what it meant. It meant loving people, loving the stranger. And then as the church actually practiced hospitality, what then happened is they began to have these things called guest chambers or inns, like, a, like an innkeeper, you know, inns, in which people would come in order to be shown hospitality. People would be cared for, people would be healed. So strangers would come to places where they would be healed. Now, um, what then happened was, as people actually began to do that, that's where hospitals actually came from. So if you think about it, what is a hospital? A hospital is a place where strangers come to in order to be healed. And so you know, one of the things we need to think about as Christians is that whenever the Bible's talking about us as Christians being hospitable and showing hospitality, it's in those kind of categories. What would it mean for us, for you as a church, for people to walk into St. Bart's and for every single church member to believe, I am a hospital. That as people are coming in here, God wants to work through me to bring healing into people's lives. God's Spirit wants to work through me in order to welcome people. So whenever the Bible is actually talking about being hospitable, showing hospitality, it's actually thinking about it in those terms. Welcoming the stranger to see healing, to see restoration. Now, what I want us to do this morning is, and this will kind of just trickle out over into the workshop um, this afternoon, is to think a little bit about uh, in those categories. We're going to be spending some time discovering uh, a little bit about what the Bible says about hospitality. We're then going to be spending a bit of time nurturing, actually taking, well, as 
God brings his word, and as the Holy Spirit takes his word and starts to nurture it into our lives. And then we're going to be thinking a little bit about action, whether we're thinking about it here um, in a particular way or else in the workshop later on today, we'll be thinking about it in a, in a personal way. What does hospitality look like as an individual, but also what does it look like to do it as a church and to do it as part of the church? So we're going to be thinking those three categories, D and A. But just to start with, and we're going to spend some time thinking a little bit about, well, what is a biblical theology of the stranger? What does the Bible actually teach us about the stranger? We're going to go through this quite quickly, but there's a couple of verses we just want to pick up as we go along. So if you go to Exodus 22, verse 21, God says, you shall not wrong a sojourner, a stranger, or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. God says, hey, you yourselves know what it's like to be a slave. You know what it's like to be a stranger in the land of Egypt. Therefore, when you're going into the promised land, don't do that, because you know what it's like. You know what it's like to be a stranger. You know what it's like to be oppressed. So whenever you go into the promised land, this is not how you're to live. Uh, Leviticus 19, you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God, as God's people are going into the promised land. Where do we see that? Which story do we see that happening? That, that actually happened? The story of Ruth, yeah. God says, this is a provision that I'm giving in order to prefer to, to, to care for that, the, the stranger in your midst. Deuteronomy 10, 18. God executes justice for the fatherless, for the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Very often you see these three, and um, there's actually a fourth kind of together, um, the fatherless, the widow, the sojourner, and the poor. In God's economy, you see these, these four vulnerable groups of people are often collected together and put together, um, especially in the Old Testament. God's saying, care for the sojourner, love them. Psalm 149, verse 6, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. There you go again, they're there again. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Ezekiel 22, verse 7, father and mother are treated with contempt. This is why God is sending God's people into exile. So think about it in those categories. As God is sending his people into exile, he says, father and mother are treated with contempt in you. The sojourners, the stranger, suffers extortion in your midst. The fatherless and the widow are wronged in you. Part of the reason why God's people are going to exile is because of the way that they're treating the most vulnerable people in their community. And again, he says, you know, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner. There they are again. I think God's on the poor. You know, it's a game over and over and over again. And let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. Whenever we come into the the, the New Testament, you know, here is the, the well-known words um, of Jesus uh, in the sheep and the goats. Um, Jesus says, for I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me in. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And we pick up in Ephesians 2, 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God says if there's anyone who should know what it's like to be an outsider, if there's anyone that should know what it's like to be a stranger, it's who? 
It's us. It's Christians. It's believers. Because we ourselves at one point were outside of God's covenant. We at some point were strange. Not only that, we were enemies of God. And yet what Christ has done is that he has welcomed us in. So if there's anyone who should know what it's like to be an outsider, if there's anyone who should know what it's like to be outside, it's us. Because we were outside, but because of God's grace, and only because of God's grace, he has brought us in. And not only has he brought us in, so that we're no longer strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. God has made that happen. He's done that. So if there's anyone that should understand what it means to be an outsider, it should be us. Because we were outsiders ourselves. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, he says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. Hebrews 13.12, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Don't ask me what that means, but it's um, <laughs> it's um, I've had some of those moments in my life, but um, you know, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Uh, these are words which are being spoken for, for leaders in the church, um, for elders and so on. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. And Titus 1 verse 8. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. One of the requirements of being a, 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 an elder to being a leader within the, the church is to be someone who's actually hospitable. Um, which is pretty huge when you think about it. Um, the church that I grew up in, I remember my mum used to say, the minister's a great preacher. Samuel, he can preach the word. But he's not, he's not very nice. <laughs> he doesn't really get on with people. Like, he was really dynamic as a preacher, but whenever he came out of the pulpit, he'd hardly even say hello to you. And yet the Bible kind of sees, it elevates the, that, that hospitable, you know, that, that as a leader that we're called to, to welcome the stranger and to, to show hospitality to people. Now, for those of you who are sitting going, yeah, yeah, to Michael Calder, this is for you. Um, this is for all the elders. Adam Lowe, we wish Adam was here to hear this. Um, for all of you, we also read Romans 12, verse 13, which is to all of us, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So these are not just words for our leaders. These are words for all of us. As Christians, as God's people, we're called to be people who, because we have shown so much hospitality in Christ, we are to show that hospitality to others because of what we have received. It's not just for leaders, but it's for all of us. Now, please, here we go. But Sam, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. Um, you know, you don't expect everybody. You know. so, look, as an ex extrovert, if I can learn to shut up, then as an introvert, you can learn to say hello to somebody. All right? We can't use our extroversion or our introversion or our certain ways to actually hide behind, hide behind those things so that we can be disobedient in our relationship with Christ. All right? We, we'll all do it in various degrees. Some of us will be very gifted in evangelism. Some of us will be very gifted in welcoming people and loving people. Other people are, are not gifted in evangelism, but still God's called us to, to reach out to our friends and to our neighbors in Christ's name. 
And some of us are called to do it in very bold and big ways. Sometimes we're called to just do it in very quiet and small ways. They're equally valuable in God's economy. Okay? So please don't hear me. Don't be, don't be switching off saying, well, that's nothing to do with me because I'm, I'm more of an introvert than an extrovert. This is what God's calling all of, all of us to do, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As we think about all those things, there are, I think, some things we need to consider. One of those is, is thinking about counting the cost. We've already heard that a little bit from Steph this morning about what that might look like. But, but um, I lived in Japan uh, for 12 years. And uh, one morning, I was on a little 50cc uh, scooter. I used to go to the church at 7 o'clock to pray in the morning. That was my routine. So I was on this little 50cc scooter. Imagine like a, um, a bear on a bicycle in a circus. That's what I can really look like on my little 50cc scooter, you know, scooting down towards the church. And as I came down, there was a car parked in the middle of the road. And I, I, it was parked there, and all, all the cars were beeping their horns. And so I just, on my little scooter, went past I got about 15 meters down the road and thought, Sam, good Samaritan, go back and help. So I did a, a U-turn, came back on my scooter, came back to the window, stopped my, my bike, and I said in Japanese, Daijou desu ka? Are you okay? The window was down. And he said, Nonikyo ka? What do you mean, am I okay? And I looked down, and he was holding a kitchen knife. And he opened the door of the car, and I saw the kitchen knife turned, and pfft, not very quickly, but you get the idea, <laughs> And this guy was chasing me down the street with a kitchen knife, trying to stop me. And um, I managed to get down the road, called the police. The guy had gone by the time the police had come. And the lesson from that is, don't ever stop to help anybody. That's not the lesson of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was supposed to be stopping and you're helping and you're caring for someone. And at the end, it's all rosy at the end. The story of the Good Samaritan is there is a cost involved. The ultimate picture of the Good Samaritan is the picture of Jesus. Jesus offering himself, Jesus counting the cost in order to save us. And so when we're going to help people, we're going to show hospitality to people, there is a cost that we must bear. Now, thinking a little bit about that, what, what might be... Some of those costs, there you go, I'll just throw it out there. What might be some of the costs that you might need to bear? So, example, you're at church on a Sunday. What might be a cost that you must bear on a Sunday to welcome the stranger? Yes. At the expense of of catching up with someone, yeah. So what might you do in that situation if you're having a... You see someone, ah, you can always catch up with them again. Yeah, you've got a relationship with them already, yep. Anything else? Yep, if you need to get up, so get there early in order to welcome people before they get there, yep. Or it might even be the other one. It might be giving up some time after the service. You're having a conversation with someone. You're looking at your watch and think, oh, I've got to get away. I've got, like, lunch to get to or something, and you've got to spend a bit of extra time with someone as well, yep. What else might there be on a, on a Sunday or even another time? What might be some of the costs to bear? Work. Bringing in extra cash, bringing in, yeah. Yep. Extra, bringing in extra cash. What, yeah, what, so what? it's more work, more money, yeah. Losing out on extra 
Yeah, yeah, in order to, yeah, that's right. Yeah, there could be a financial cost. There could even be a financial cost if you're having someone to come for a meal on a regular basis of that extra cost and food and, and you know, paying for things for people as well. Yeah, that could be one. Another thing, yeah. Anything else? Your comfort, what does that look like? Yep, yeah, that could be really scary, can't it? Um, especially if you go, oh, you know, you feel very secure with the people that you're with and there's a person you don't know. Um, thinking about what Steph was saying, it might even be counting the cost, even with somebody you just, it's okay welcoming people who look like you and who maybe have, you know, have a similar kind of way, cultural background or something that you have, but there's also a challenge of stepping out to, to, to welcome someone who are culturally very different from you or someone that maybe you would never really relate with. It could be an older person, it could be a younger person. I, I feel very comfortable. I lived in Japan. I worked with homeless people for seven years. I felt incredibly comfortable sitting down on a newspaper, hanging out, talking to a homeless person, no problem. Because I'm from a very working class background in Ireland, where you know, people are very segregated, you're working class, middle class, upper class, I had a lot of struggles when I came to Australia of actually connecting with university graduates and students. I had a huge chip on my shoulder when someone told me that they went to a private school. You know, as soon as they told me, I said, oh, Maggie, here we go again, you know. St. <laughs> Joseph's, all right, okay. <laughs> um, and that was my problem. There was, a, there, was a, there was a cost involved for me in actually dying to myself in order to again, what Steph was sharing, of actually trying to know someone and get to know them. Okay, so there's often, you know, cost, and sometimes that cost can be, can be quite hard. There can't be a cost to bear. What's the alternative? Um, I, um, uh -huh. I grew up, as I said, in Northern Ireland. Uh, there was a place quite close to our house. Uh, it was called... Mount Vernon. We would often call it Mount Vernon because of the kind of people who lived there. Uh, it was a pretty rough part of Belfast. Lots of people from a more political, terrorist kind of background were, were living there. At night time, the army, or the, sorry, the people living there would sometimes take all the street lights out so they could just keep the place in darkness so that they could move around freely without the police actually ever getting involved in going there. Uh, I used to go to my local church we had a, a young girl came along to our church on a Sunday morning from Mount Vernon. And at the time, you know, it was, you know, at the time it felt like she was walking like 45 minutes to get to church. Now when I look back, it was probably more like a five-minute, like a three-minute drive or something. But at the time it felt like, wow, she's working. She's walking from Vern Mount Vernon. She was about 14 years old by herself coming to church. And she used to come to church and none of the young people would sit with her because she smelt she didn't have a mum and dad. She lived with her two aunties, and she was obviously wearing hand-me-downs. And so she'd always sit with the pastor's wife. She'd always sit there. She started coming along to something called the Christian Endeavor, which was all the young people came and were endeavoring to be good Christians, and she'd come along. And again, no one would ever sit with her. Because Diane, she smelled, she was a bit rough, and she would come and go every week and would give her a pleasant smile. And she was there, but that was about it. One week, she came along with a bag of lollies and chips and crisps and started sharing with everybody. She became my friend that night. You know, she was giving me lollies and chips and all that. Hey, hey, hey. And, you know, we're sitting munching on the chips and the lollies. And then during the evening, one of her aunties came in, grabbed her by the hair, 
pulled her outside into the hallway, started beating her, and started saying, why did you steal that money from my pursy little beep, beep, beep? So Diane had stolen the money from her aunt's purse in order to buy the love of the young people at church. Now, my reaction was, I certainly want nothing to do with her. Because, I mean, why would you have someone like that? Why would you want to be friends with someone like that? And um, a couple of weeks later, we were all going out. All the young people, there was like 40 of us down at the church, were all going out for the day. All the cars were there. We all packed into the cars, and there was no room for Diane. So what did we do? We left her standing on the pavement in front of the church as all the young people and all the youth leaders drove off for the day and left her there in the name of Christ. And as we did that, you know what we thought? Isn't that great? Could you imagine having Diane in your car for like an hour? Stinking the car out. It would be terrible. You'd have to put all the windows down. She might steal something. A couple of weeks later, we were... I was at, we got a phone call to say that Diane had been with her two aunties that night. She'd had a headache. She went to bed, and she never woke up. She died in her sleep, 14 years old. And if there was anybody that ever needed love that came into our church, Diane was it. And yet all she got was just ridicule and judgment. That's all she ever got. And as a a young, I was 14 years old, I walked behind her coffin with my head held down in shame. And I swore to myself, I would never, ever allow anyone to walk into your church and ever feel like that again. And the reality is, you do not know who walks through your door on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. You have no idea what situation they've come from. We had a young girl, a young, we were, I was working in Melbourne, a young Japanese girl who came to our church. And she said that she, when she came to church, she flipped the coin whether she's going to go to the psychiatric hospital or come to church. And thankfully, it landed on church, and so she came to church on Sunday morning. Sometimes you have no idea. And, and, and in my head, I often think the person who walks through that door of that church is Diane. Someone who needs love. And what am I going to do? How am I going to embrace them? How, I, how am I going to love them? How am I going to care for them? Because I don't want anyone to ever die without actually experiencing that kind of love. Especially dying without Christ. You know, thinking about you know, anybody coming into your church. We don't know their, their background, whether they're Christian or not. But if they do come in, what does that mean? And, and that's, that's one thing to welcome. Hi, welcome. You know, here's a party back. Sorry, here's a, a little gift from the church or something. Um, you know, it's one thing to do that. But again, what does it actually mean for us to, 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 to embrace that person and take them in and love them and make them part of our life and care for them? And, um, and again, very often there's a cost, isn't there? That's where the cost is. We had, a, we had another guy um, in our church in Japan. He was homeless. He he, um, he, had, he couldn't speak, couldn't verbalize, couldn't talk. And so he, um, and we found out that when he was 16 years old, he was riding on a motorbike 
In those days, the police were putting piano wires across the road to try and stop the motorbike gangs. He told his friend Duck, they went underneath the piano wire, he turned around and his friend's head had been decapitated. And he went to his friend's parents' house for a full year and he bowed and asked forgiveness and for a full year they slammed the door in his face. And so from that moment on, he just lost the power to converse and relate. So by the time he got to 30 years old, he, he couldn't even converse. So one of the guys from church, he could play the guitar, and so the way that he spoke was through his guitar. One of the guys from church would just sit and help him play guitar, and he started improving his guitar, got involved in our church. He wanted a job to do, so in those days, instead of that, we used to be the old OHP. You remember the old OHP projectors? Some of you are looking a bit, what are the way? But anyway, there's a couple of people who know what they are. Um, you know, you have to write them out first, little acetate sheets, and you put them on the screen. Um, People are saying, what's an acetate sheet? But anyway, you get the drift. Um, you know, so we used to do that, and he had the job of writing some of the songs out. And, um, he, he, but he wasn't good in English, so we had English and Japanese songs. And there was one song, you know, Lord, I lift your name on high. He actually wrote it, Lord, I lift your name on high. Um, Lord, I long to sing your praises. Um, and the English was a bit higgledy-piggledy. And we had a choice. What do we do? Do we put the song up or do we just not? If we put the song up, it'll completely knock him back at that time. And so we decided that that's what we'd use for our singing on a Sunday morning. And there were, I remember this time people walked into the church once and they were like three Americans or something. They came and they were going... <laughs> I mean, we, all the English speakers just sang the song as it was supposed to be sung. But, uh, <laughs> and they were all looking at each other like, what the heck is this? What, what kind of church is this? And it was like, we had a choice. What do we do? Do we embrace him and love him? And if we do that, we're going to lose those four Americans. So we chose to embrace him, understanding that in that process, we may lose people. There's often a cost involved. Don't underestimate the power of, of eating together. It's pretty powerful, isn't it? You're thinking about the Lord Jesus and how he, you know, he often you know, pulled people together. And in Jesus' day, you know, whenever you're sharing a meal with someone, how powerful that was. What the message was, it was a message of acceptance. Whenever, you know, whenever Jesus was sitting down with sinners and text collectors and sharing a meal with them, he was having fellowship with them, and you could see how angry the Pharisees were so irritated with Jesus because of what he was doing. It's an act of, of welcoming. But also, you know, even in our society, in our age, you know, actually don't ever underestimate just the power of sharing a meal with someone. It can be pretty powerful to actually sit down and eat with people. We had... Um, um, I don't know whether I picked that up. No, I didn't. Um, there's a, a group of the most unreached people group in the world, or one of the most unreached people groups, or the group called the Rohingya. They're from Western Burma. There's lots of them in Bangladesh. Um, very difficult people to reach with the gospel. And we've been praying for them for a number of, of years, and we found a Rohingya in Brisbane. And I, said, I was like, you're Rohingya? Oh, my goodness, you know. <laughs> and... <laughs> And I said, oh, yeah, there's about six, 600 of you in Brisbane. Oh, my goodness. That's amazing. You know, do you want to come for dinner? And uh, we invited them over to our place. Well, not the whole 600 of them. But we had, um, 
about 12 Rohingyan guys came to our house for a meal and we had dinner together. My wife, she's Japanese, so she made some Japanese food and okonomiyaki. I don't know why she made it, but anyway, we kind of ate some food, we chatted, we talked. And at the end of the night, one of the guys stood up and said, I'm going to talk about what I'm taking home this evening. I, talk, I take home love, I take home hope, and I take home friendship. These are not Christians. None of these guys are Christians. They're all Muslims. And he says, I have been in Australia for three years and five months, and this is the first time any Australian has ever invited me into their home. Now, I didn't have the guts to stand up and say, I'm Irish, my wife's Japanese, and you're still waiting for that moment. But three years and five months from an unreached, unengaged people group. And he was probably as unreached and unengaged in Brisbane as what he would have been. He's probably less unreached and unengaged with the gospel in a place where he is surrounded by churches and Christians. And I've talked to other Australians, and they've said, oh, it's probably been three years and five months since anybody's invited me into their home. But like the power of actually just sharing, inviting people into their home, people coming, coming in, sharing a meal with someone, having a meal. It doesn't have to be complicated. Um, therefore, keep it simple. Um, think about it. You have, most of us eat three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Multiply that seven times. That's 21 times that you eat right, during the week. 21 times where you stop and you eat. So why don't you actually think about some of those 21 occasions during the week, and instead of just eating by yourself or eating with someone, why don't you just invite someone to come and join you in that? So you don't have to create something else. You don't have to create, oh my goodness, Sam, you don't understand how busy I am, I've got so much things going on. Why not just think about the things you're already doing and you're going to have a meal? Why not just think about having the meal and just inviting someone to come and be part of the meal? You've got 21 opportunities. Now, if you chuck in morning tea, afternoon tea, and supper, that's another 21. That's 42 opportunities a week that you have to just share a meal with someone, invite somebody in. And please, you don't need to be a Michelin chef, five-star chef to do this. It can be the simplest thing. Because for lots of people, it's not about the quality of the food you're serving. It's about the fact that you're actually inviting somebody into your home in order to, to have a meal with someone. One of the most underutilized people, I think, in local churches tend to be people from other cultures who can't speak English. They're all from collective cultures. They don't understand what the word potluck means. We have these things called potluck because nobody wants to cook for 40 people. Let's have potluck because no, I can't cook for 40 people. But people from other collective cultures are like going... Like we've got, we're having a thing called World of Yom, which is on next weekend. We've got some Persian people. She says, how many people come? And I said, oh, about 60. Oh, only 60? I can do 90, 100, 120. I said, no, no, 60 is fine. Are you sure? I said, 60 is fine. You know, some kind of, you know she, oh, I'm used to cooking for 100 people. No problem. I said, no, thank you. But, you know, people often, in those, why not use those kind of people and just let them loose? And, and if you don't want to cook anything at your home, invite one of them over to your house and let them cook. If you want to have a party with 20 or 30 people, let them come and, and, and look how you benefit. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, you often benefit from inviting people over, having a meal with them, sharing with them. But again, don't, be, don't overcomplicate it. Just keep it simple. And, and, and it's not just even with eating. Um, I, I was going to watch, this is a long time ago, I was going to watch Guardians of the Galaxy with my son, 
going to watch the movie, and I said, let's go and watch it. We were going to go to Cineplex in Brisbane because it's $6.50, it's cheap, let's have a cheap day out. So me and my son are going to watch the movie, and we called another friend and said, we're going to let's go together, and he said, okay, can my housemates go? I said, sure, how many of you are there? Oh, there's eight of us. Okay, okay, uh, sure. And then I'm hung up the phone, okay, I've, my car sits eight, eight, nine, oh, we've got ten, we need two more seats. So I called up my Japanese friend and said, Hikaru, can you come to the, I said, oh, yes, I'd love to come. Can you bring your car? Sure. So he's bringing his car. This other friend, who they're all Muslims, they're all Afghans, they call me and they say, oh, by the way, Sam, our housemates next door would like to come and watch the movie too. Can they come? He said, sure. So they then joined us as well. And I said, do they have a car? Yes, that's fine then. So we ended up having 16 people uh, to go and watch the movie, which I paid for. So I bought 16, my cheap day out became 16 tickets. <laughs> and we're all sitting there in a big long line, ready to watch the movie. The guy next to me who's called Muhammad, and the, guy, the other guy next to me called Muhammad, said, Sam, tell me, you are a Christian. Can you tell me what's the difference between Jesus and Muhammad? So oh, I'm very happy to say, blah, blah, blah. and then as he's talking, the other guy, yes, Sam, you know, can you tell me, you know, that we know this thing about Christianity, but how different is that between Islam? So, blah, 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 blah. so you're having this conversation. Meanwhile, the Aussie pagans that are sitting in front of us change seats because they don't want to listen to our conversation, <laughs> which is fine. They can go and they can be pagan. Um, but we're you know, having this great conversation and then we were sitting watching the movie. One of the guys is from a particular town in, in his country where they had no movie theater because it got blown up by the Taliban. He's never watched a movie before. And it's 3D. And so he's sitting like going... <laughs> so half the movie we're watching, the other half of the movie we're watching... <laughs> Sit at the edge of the seat. Best $102 I have ever spent. Doesn't have, you don't have to spend $102, but still, you know, what an incredible opportunity just to welcome people and just do, I was going to watch the movie with my son anyway, and we just included people in that process. Um, in saying that, um, just, in, just in wrapping up, here's a story. Um, this is Roly. Uh, Roly was one of those Afghans that we knew. Um, I was his English teacher, so I met him. Uh, there was about 600 refugees coming into, into Brisbane every week. We started uh, a thing called West End Welcomes to welcome new asylum seekers coming into Brisbane. Roly was one of the first students who came. What students? One of the first asylum seekers who came. Couldn't speak much English. Became friends with me. Um, it was quite funny because he um, would often um, say to me things like, um, sorry, Tim, just realize you're just taking a photograph. Make sure you don't put this anywhere, okay? Um, so... Um, so whenever we uh, were, um, whenever we first met him, um, he actually thought that I was always hitting on him because I kept saying things like, do you want to come to my house for dinner? And I'd always kind of like go, hey, Roly, like this here. And he'd go, Why is this foreigner always touching me all the time? Um, and for about three or four months, he just thought I was hitting him all the time. And, and after a while, we just became friends. He started coming to our house for dinner. We became best mates, um, and we started hanging out a bit more. He got to know my family a bit better. Um, he then uh, became a Christian, um, and so that's his baptism. Uh, we, um, that's it. we actually meet on the, a campus at one of the universities down in Brisbane, uh, and so at his baptism, we asked everybody to bring a, a saucepan or a bucket or something, and so everybody brought something along. Uh, and we had the baptism where every, we all, we baptized him in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. So we, we did all that together. Um, and 
he, you know, continued to live as a Christian. And I said to my kids once, hey, kids, um, Rolly's become a Christian now. He's now our brother. Yeah, he's now part of our family. Brilliant. Um, what do we do as part of a family? Oh, we, do we spend birthdays together? Yes. Do we spend Christmas together? Yes. Um, do we have meals together? Yes. Do we go on holiday together? No. Because we were just about to go on holiday for two weeks. And I actually wanted to bring him with us because I didn't want to leave him in Brisbane by himself. And then, one by one, each of my kids, they were quite small at the time, came and said, Dad, Roly can come. And so we took Roly with us down to Tamworth, and then we went across to um, Coffs Harbour, spent two weeks. We got to the hotel, actually, in Coffs Harbour, and um, it, was a two, it was like a two be- three bedrooms, and we've got four kids, two girls and two boys. And so my eldest son said to me, Dad, um, where's he sleeping? And I said, well, two girls are in here. Me and Mum are in here. Da-da. And he was going, he's not sleeping with me. And I said, well, mate, what else do you want to sleep? So it was like my younger son, Jack, Ray, and then Rolly. And, but during that, those two weeks, those two became inseparable. They went fishing together. They spent time together. They laughed together. You know, they'd go out and fishing at midnight and all this kind of stuff. They just spent all this time together. And he just became a part of our family. So whenever he had to move out of the house that he was living in, he had nowhere to live. So he came to live with us for three years. Uh, and in that time, he became like just a member of our family to the point that um, this is at his wedding. He got married to one of the trainees at our church, um, Lauren. And that's uh, my, my two boys and two boys and um, two girls. And um, that's not my other child. That's actually my wife there to the left of Roly. Um, we are the same age, by the way, just to point that out. Um, but we were, um, you know, at, at the wedding, we, we were there as Roly's family. Um, my kids were excited because they got the front pew as the family pew. Uh, my wife couldn't find a parking space, so the whole church was packed. And Roly came over and said, we can't start. Mummy's not here yet. She's not here yet. We have to wait until Mummy comes. And then, you know, whenever they get married, they've got, you know, grand, we've got, well, grandchildren. We've, they've got kids now. They've got twin girls. And they call me um, Pops. They call my wife Coco, you know, Coco Pops. Um, but, you know, I chatted them on the way up here um, today on the phone. Um, and we're part of their family. They're part of our family. My, my daughter got a tattoo on her arm um, with, the, with her siblings' birthdays on it, and, and one of them is actually Roly. Roly's on her arm as, as, as her brother. Her, their kids treat our family like we're, we're family. We celebrate together. And so whenever you're welcoming people in the name of Christ and welcoming the stranger, it's not just about you know, us losing something. But if anything, in this relationship, I, we're the ones that are blessed. I mean, whenever we are counting the cost, whenever we're, you know, Jesus is calling us to pick up our cross and follow him in relationships or in our life, he's asking us to do that because he wants to lead us into life. He's leading us into eternal life, into the joys, into the blessings of what it means. When you, you know, at church and you're, you, you leave your group and you walk across the room and you speak to someone and you talk to someone, in that process, you, you, know, you don't know who you're talking to. You don't know the relationship of that person. You don't know what's, how that person, what they're going to be in five or six years, ten years' time, how God's going to use you in that relationship. You have no idea. But the beauty is, is that as we, as Christ has welcomed us and as he has welcomed us by his grace and as we share that grace with others, that we can be confident that when that happens is that God and his grace 
is at work in their lives and our lives and the lives of our church and in the lives of those around us. Um, I've just got thinking a little bit about the DNA thing, the action. Um, I'm just going to leave it there this morning because I wanna, we're going to be thinking a little bit about in our workshop, thinking about how do we, what are some of the actions, what are some of the things that we need to put in place. Uh, for those of the, the, you who are not, will not be part of the workshop, I want you to think a little bit for yourselves. What does it mean for me uh, to, to welcome the stranger, to reach out uh, and to welcome others in the name of Christ. How, God, how might God be able to, to me to do that? How might he empower me and equip me um, in order to do that? Um, but I'll just pray for us as we just think about that. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the many ways in which you have welcomed us in the name of Christ. Lord, that we were enemies of, of the gospel, enemies of you, enemies of your people, and yet you have brought us, you've saved us, not just to keep us on the periphery, but you've wrapped your arms around us, you've welcomed us as a member of your family. And so, Lord, please, I pray, show us ways in which we might do the same to others. Because we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.